here in southern middle tennessee again uh you get extra credits if you know where that song uh, comes from who did that song that's an old song and you only get that little bit to figure it out um feel free to go to uh our uh, facebook group the jesus society podcast and post your answer to that question um who did that song Uh, Hi, folks. This is Ron Longwell. Uh, I am glad you're here today for another episode of the Jesus Society podcast, a conversation exploring relationship, renewal, and purpose in the kingdom of God. This is episode 80 of the Jesus Society podcast. And um, today um, we're going to start a a new little series, and we're going to get right into that as soon as I have a sip of coffee. Because it is morning and coffee is good. And the Jesus Society podcast is fueled by coffee. Um, but we're going to start a new uh, a new little series. I said last week that um, I've got a bunch of stuff I want to kind of talk about. And um, we're going to... We're going to get into that, and I think I'm going to call this series, I was wrestling with what I'm going to call this, because it touches on a lot of different things, but I think I'm going to wrap it up under the umbrella of um, following Jesus in the 21st century. Um, And the first piece of that, which we're going to start today, has to do with the call of Jesus to discipleship, Um, what that means. Um, what what the what's the biblical background to all that? Um, you know what's if we're going to follow Jesus, what's Jesus up to? We're going to follow him where and to do what, right? Um, and what on earth Jesus intends both for us and as much about that as what he intends to do through us. Okay, and and that of course touches on a, a lot of things, uh, all sorts of things. Um, it touches on purpose. It touches on hope. It touches on meaning, um, and those are all things I think that we would all say we'd like some clarity about in our lives. So hang around for a little bit today, and let's see what we can make out of this. Okay, so when Jesus calls people, he doesn't, he doesn't just call them to be with him and hang out. Um, although, of course, that's part of it, right? Um, to be with him, to learn who he is, to enjoy his company. It's, it's not an impersonal thing, right? It's not like, um, you know, it's not like you get, a, you get a letter in the mail saying, hey, you got to show up for jury duty, right? And you're going to go there and you're going to spend your day or week or whatever it is, and nobody's going to really know you. And it, like, it's very cold and impersonal, right? That's not what this is. This is very personal. Um, we are drawn um, to this extraordinarily powerful, attractive personality that we call Jesus. And he very much wants to have a personal, loving, experiential relationship um, with us with all the warmth and love and friendship that you would expect with that kind of relationship. But he calls people for a purpose. 
He calls people, and that purpose goes beyond just having a warm, friendly relationship with him. He calls people because God is doing something in the world, and he wants to share what he's doing with the people who he wants to work through. So it is a, it is a call with a purpose. Um, it always is, all right? But before we can kind of ask our questions about some of that, we, we, have to, we have to kind of think about what the purpose of God is in the world, right? If we're, if we're going to understand what he's calling us for, we kind of have to understand a little bit about what he's doing and what his purpose is in the world. And I think that one of the best places to go, at least to begin to figure out what that's all about, is the beginning of Mark's gospel. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, we're told that after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And this is what he said. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And then if you read Mark's gospel, like immediately after that, the next thing he does is he starts calling Peter, Andrew, James, John, and then more as he goes, as the story goes goes on, right? So there's there's something about the calling of the first disciples, which in Mark's gospel, at least, seems to be the immediate implication of the announcement of the kingdom that God has come near. Okay? The time is fulfilled, Jesus said. Now, what, what on earth does that mean? And, and I really mean what on earth? Um, because... Sometimes when we talk about the kingdom of God, a lot of Christians just kind of go into default mode and they think that the kingdom of God is simply about, uh, I don't know, getting your legal problems sorted out with God um, so that we can all go to heaven when we die. And it's just not. That's, that's not what the kingdom of God is about. Remember, remember the Lord's Prayer. Remember what Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer Part of that is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And and I want to make sure we all understand what we're we're saying here. On On the short list of Jesus' suggestions about what we should be praying and how we should be praying is not, Lord, help us all to go to heaven when we die. That's not what Jesus tells us to pray. What he does say is to pray that God's kingdom will come here on earth. And he kind of defines the kingdom as uh, the kingdom of God as being about God's will being done here the same way it is in heaven. That's what this is all about, okay? Remember the last scene in the Bible in Revelation 22 is is not about saved souls going up to heaven. It is about the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth. And if that sounds strange to you, um, I will put a book in the show notes today that that does a great job um, of sorting through um, all those issues and, and making that case a little bit. But the point is that the kingdom of God is is far more about what happens on earth than many of us realize. But in order to kind of understand what Jesus meant when he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, we, we need to understand the biblical context, okay? And, and 
one of the things I, I just, I, I feel like I'm banging the, banging the drum all the time is a lot of us have, um, I'm going to try not to just go into preacher mode here about all this, but a lot of us have the idea that the Old Testament is just irrelevant now, that we're New Testament Christians, right? I've, I've talked about this before, that the New Testament is what matters. The problem is um, the, the Bible tells one story, one unfolding story, and Old Testament to New. And if we just pick it up midway through the story, it'd be like picking up a novel, right? And turn into the middle pages and start reading from then on. You, you miss all the stuff in the beginning that sets the scene, that sets the tone, that sets the expectations, the the problem characters, the 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 you know all that stuff. You miss all that. We get all that in the Old Testament. We get a, if we if we read it right, we get a clear picture of what God intended all along and how this unfolding story of God's work in the world culminates in Jesus. So we've we've got to pay attention to that. So. When Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near, there, there's a lot of background to that, right? And so we need to understand some of that. Uh, what time is Jesus talking about? In, in, in what sense is it now fulfilled, okay? Now, Jesus' hearers in the first century, they, they got all that, right? Because they knew the biblical story that they were living in. And in particular, they knew the book of Daniel. So, um, hold on, more coffee. This conversation requires a lot of lubrication, if you know what I mean. Um, the Jewish historian Josephus in the second half of the first century um, says that, so, so one of the things that was going on in the second half of the first century, well after Jesus was crucified, is there were a number of Jewish groups um, revolting against Rome. And the Jewish historian Josephus says that one of the main reasons that these Jewish groups were driven to revolt against Rome in the 60s of the first century was Quote, because of an oracle in their scriptures which said that at that time a world ruler would arise from Judea. So in other words, they were waiting for the kingdom of God and they believed that this oracle, which we can trace back to the book of Daniel chapter 9, said that there was actually kind of a fixed chronology of all this. This wasn't just going to happen at some random time or whenever God decided there was sort of a fixed chronology. It was going to be what Daniel said was 70 weeks of years. That's roughly 490 years, okay, after the people had gone into exile in Babylon. And they were trying to do the math, the, the Jews in Jesus' day, and, 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 well, ever since Daniel, they were trying to do the math and kind of figure out, well, when is this, this going to happen? And they didn't always, you know, they're, they're, they're flying a little bit blind, right? They're, they're trying to figure out some things that have not perfectly been made clear, and so they didn't always agree on their calculations, but many of them believed that at this time, in the first century, God was finally going to do the thing that he had promised to do. So what was that thing? Okay, so so here's another piece of the Jewish exile that you have to understand. There, there's two huge events, two huge events in, um, the, in Jewish life 
that kind of defined them. One was the, the Exodus, right, um, where God delivered Israel out of um, out of Egypt, where they were enslaved, right? The other one is the exile. Both of those things held great meaning for Israel. They defined kind of who they were and their problems and what they believed about God and, and a lot of that stuff, okay? So the, the other piece of the Jewish exile that you have to understand and, and without making it too complicated, Israel was carried off into Babylonian captivity in roughly 586 BC. Okay, it it happened uh, like it wasn't it wasn't quite so pointed as that. It happened in in a couple of waves, but but we'll just say 586 BC. At least some of them were allowed to return to the land about 70 years later, and to begin to to build. The second temple, the first one, the first temple, of course, had been destroyed by Babylonians when Babylon ransacked Jerusalem and carried away Israel into into exile, right? But there's an interesting thing about that temple. So when the first temple was constructed in Solomon's day, we're told that when when it when it all got completed and they were getting they were dedicating the temple. The presence and glory of God, the Shekinah of God, descended on that temple as God came to dwell there. And you can read all about that in Second Chronicles chapter seven, uh, verses one and following. Okay. But when that second temple was dedicated in Ezra chapter six, there's nothing in that story about. God actually coming to dwell there. No no glory of God coming down in splendor and taking up resonance there like what happened in the dedication of the first temple under Solomon. Okay? It's different. And for Israel, the presence of God in their midst was part of their national identity. It's it's what made Israel Israel. So it, what it looked like to them was that Israel was allowed to return to the land, but their God didn't come along this time. And that led some Israelites, at least by the time of Jesus, to conclude that in some sort of nebulous way that they didn't quite understand, Israel's exile wasn't yet over. That God hadn't completely forgiven the sin of Israel that led to the exile in the first place, which is why he hadn't returned, and which was why ever since the Babylonian captivity and even continuing on into the first century, Israel was still in subjection or in slavery to some foreign power. You know, it was the Babylonians, then it was the Medes and the Persians, kind of the Greeks, and now the Romans. They had never, ever since they had been carried away into into exile they had never again been free okay and so that and the fact that that god didn't seem to come and dwell in their midst at the second when the second temple was built led them to, to conclude something's different here this is we're, we're not really in exile because we're allowed to go back home but we kind of still are because our god's not with us and we're still enslaved okay they didn't understand all of that but they were very aware of it, okay? So, so putting these two pieces together, the Daniel chapter 9 piece, the 70 weeks of years piece, and this, this belief about the, a continuing exile, 
There were a lot of Jews in Jesus' day that believed that finally, after their long extended exile, which which again is, is kind of discussed in cryptic language in Daniel 7, 24 through 27, that eventually history was now about to turn a single great corner and God was at last going to do the new thing, rescuing Israel from slavery, just like he did in the Exodus, judging the world, forgiving sin, and bringing about a new world order of peace and justice. That's what they believed. They believed God was going to do that. And so after all that background, Jesus is saying in Mark chapter 1, we've turned the last page in the calendar. The time is fulfilled. God's kingdom is coming near right now. So this, in other words, is the time for God to become king. That is what this is all about. Now, what's it mean for God to become king? I mean, isn't isn't God kind of always king? Well, yes and no. We have to we have to wrap our heads around these these passages that we see scattered around all throughout the Old Testament, but but particularly in the Psalms and in Daniel and as we're going to see in Isaiah, where. The, the, the people of Israel are, are anticipating and celebrating the fact that something new is going to happen. And the, and the new thing that's going to happen is that God is going to take his power and reign in a fresh way. And, and in those Old Testament passages, particularly in places like, you know, sometimes just sit down with your Bible and read Psalm 93, Psalm 94, Psalm 95, 96, 97, 98, 99 read those read those psalms psalm 93 through 99 every single one of those psalms celebrates and anticipates the idea that god is coming to reign as king and god becoming king is what that means is it's all about the whole creation being healed and fixed and made right once again as he reigns and he is coming to judge the world. And, and you gotta understand, we've we've got a we've got a tremendous deal of baggage around the idea of judgment. Okay? We don't we do not understand judgment in the full sense that the Bible talks about judgment. Judge doesn't mean to condemn or destroy, okay? It means to put everything right at last. Think uh, 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 maybe a helpful way to think about this is think back to the judges in Israel's history, right? What was their role? Was their, was their primary role about just preaching and condemning, right? You're not doing this right. You're not doing that right. Stop doing this. No, that's not what they did. The judges were the governors of Israel, okay? Their role was to govern, to lead, to make sure that God's will was done in Israel, that 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 peace and justice and righteousness were at work in Israel. Sometimes that meant um, rescuing in Israel from some some oppressive neighbors, right? Um, just judging makes sure peace and justice and faithfulness prevails in God's society. Okay. 
So justice, remember, is not just about people being punished. It's it's a much larger concept than that. Um, I did a I did an episode a while back called Justice in the Kingdom of God, and I, I will put a link in the show notes to that. I I, I talked about that in more detail um, there. Anyway, that is what judging is about. And so when God comes to reign as King to judge the world, God's coming to sort out the mess, and for His whole creation to be restored once again. And it's a process, right? Like it's not going to, God's just going to come in, in the time of Jesus and everything's going to be fixed. It is, a, it is a process and we're in the midst of that process. There's an end point in sight and we'll, we'll get to all that. Um, but in Isaiah, um, hold on, more coffee. In the book of Isaiah, one of the, one of the key passages um, about God becoming king, and, and Jesus alludes to it again and again in his ministry, is Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7 through 12, which says this in part, The watchmen lift up their voices and shout for joy, for every eye will see when the Lord returns to Zion. And how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the one who comes to Zion and says, Your God reigns. So what does that mean? It means that after the Babylonian exile and after the extended exile that that goes on beyond that, at last God is coming back and he's going to show the world who's boss. But as it turns out, that doesn't look quite like what Israel thinks it's going to look like. Because Israel thinks, right, um, and if you're Israel, you'd think that too. Uh, after their history in the Exodus, right, when God came and showed Pharaoh who's boss, what did that mean? Man, big things, right? God's going to do some miracles. He's going to he's going to free Israel. There's a battle There's a, between God and Pharaoh, right? And God's going to kick some butt, as it were. So they're expecting that when Messiah comes, when God comes to reign, God's going to overthrow these Romans in the same way that he did Pharaoh in Egypt. But it doesn't look exactly like that. So what does it look like? Well, again, back to Isaiah. When you read on from Isaiah 52... um, where it talks about, you know, it's, it's a wonderful thing, God's coming to reign... When you just keep reading and get into Isaiah 53, we suddenly get a picture of the suffering servant, someone who is bruised for our iniquities, wounded for our transgressions, despised and rejected, and and upon him was the suffering that made us whole. And somehow you see those two pictures of God coming to reign and becoming king and sorting things out and of this suffering servant who is wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities and and enduring suffering that makes us all. Those two pictures go together in a way that a lot of churches have often found very difficult to, to, to reconcile. And so sometimes you look around today and you see sometimes two very different kinds of churches, right? Um, 
there there are churches who who talk a lot about the kingdom of God and they and they recognize and they see in Jesus ministry that he went about, he went about doing good feeding the hungry and caring for the poor and being kind to people and healing people who are crippled or blind or whatever just making life better for lots and lots of people and these churches have latched onto that vision and 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 they decide you know, we're going to follow Jesus and, and go out into the world and keep doing those kind of things in his name. And so they start orphanages and they and they feed the, the, the poor and, and, you know, do all that kind of good work stuff in the world in his name. But those churches sometimes find themselves wondering, so why did Jesus actually have to die? I mean, he was he was doing so much good, and it's just a, such a shame that his work was cut short. And they and they struggle sometimes with that. So they they celebrate the kingdom, but they don't really understand how the, how the cross fits into that. On the other hand, you have churches who kind of do it the other way around, and those churches sometimes say things like, and I, I had a I had a, a minister tell me this one time years ago. He said, you know, he summed this all up by saying, Jesus was born to die. And, and those churches sometimes have trouble understanding what all that kingdom stuff was about. And for those kind of churches, it would be perfectly fine if Jesus had been born of a virgin, grew up, and then went straight to the cross and did virtually nothing in between. We've got to understand that those two pictures are supposed to fit together. The kingdom means what it's supposed to mean in light of the cross. That's, that's its destination. And the cross means what it's supposed to mean in light of the kingdom. Those, those two very different looking pictures are part of the same whole. They're part of the same agenda of God. And in Isaiah 52 and 53, God is coming back to be king in order to sort everything out. And the means by which he's doing that is the death of his servant. And so when Jesus says in Mark chapter 1, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, you and you and you and you, you come with me. When Jesus says that, he's merging and, and absorbing those people that he's calling into his larger kingdom mission even though at the time they don't have a clue what that's about right and maybe if they did they'd just decide to keep on fishing instead but even later after they've been with jesus a while and they've seen some of the stuff that he's done and after they've they've said yes we believe you're the messiah in mark chapter 8 and and some of the other parallels like matthew and luke and Jesus says, okay, here we are. We're going to go up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man is going to be handed over and be killed and on the third day going to be raised. They still don't understand. They still don't get what's going on. And, and we've got to not be too hard on them for that, right? But they, I, I think they think that that's just kind of some sort of strange metaphor. I, I, think, I think that they think he's saying something kind of like, okay, if I'm the Messiah, we're going to have to do battle. If we're going to throw off Rome and, and restore God's kingdom to Israel, we're going to have to do battle. And we're going to go up to Jerusalem. We're going to fight this battle. And some of us may get hurt and some of us may get killed, but we're going to win. And so they say, all right, let's go. 
And that's why they go with him, because they're looking for God to become king, and they think that that's going to happen in kind of the normal way that kings assume power, military conquest. The Jews tried it 200 years before in the revolt under Judas Maccabeus, which you can, which you can read about in the, in the apocryphal books, 1 and 2 Maccabees. Uh, 1 Maccabees is better than 2 Maccabees, by the way. Uh, but it worked. They, they tried it then, and it sort of kind of worked a little bit. It worked for a short time against the Syrians. Was it going to work now against the Romans? Well, they were hoping it would. But Jesus is constantly trying to tell them that there's a different sort of battle to fight a different sort of victory to be won. And we'll we'll get to that in this series. But the first thing about this to grasp is the Old Testament context in which the idea of God becoming king makes the sense it makes. And then when Jesus says, you, stop what you're doing and come with me, if we, if we have our ears kind of attuned, again, to the, to the larger biblical picture, the Old Testament, The call to discipleship kind of sounds a little bit like the call that God made to people like Abraham. You know, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, God says to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. And Abraham goes. Now, Abraham's not consistent, right? He, He believes for a little bit and he does some great things and then he wobbles a bit. And he seems to do that every couple of chapters. You know, he believes for a bit and then he sort of crashes. And then later on, God calls Aaron to be priest. He calls Elijah and the other great prophets. There's the call of David to be the man after God's own heart. He wobbled a bit too, didn't he? But God made promises to David. And those are all background models that help us see something hugely important about the way God works in the world. When God is operating in his creation... God wants to do it. God insists on doing it. Not not despite people and not just for the benefit of people, but through people. And he, he insists on doing it that way for the most part. Sometimes God steps in and does things apart from people, but by and large, that's the way God... In, just is insists on working in the world. And he's always worked that way. God's purposes from Genesis chapter 1 onward were always to be put into operation, not entirely again, but in key parts, through his created image-bearing human beings. When God creates Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, he doesn't simply say, okay, here's a set of moral rules, you better keep them. Don't break them, which, which of course they do. And sometimes that's all we see when we read Genesis 1 through 3. God created the world, put Adam and Eve there and said, here's the rules, here's one big one, don't break it. And immediately they break it and God kicks them out. Sometimes that's all we see. We miss the, the really important stuff there that happens before the fall. There's a bunch of stuff in there if, we, if we're paying attention, there's more to the story than just that. The important thing is that they are to, they're given a purpose. They're given a job. They are to look after the garden. They're to name the animals. They are to be vice regents over God's world. Um, I've, I've talked about that in, a, in another episode, and I'll put that in the show notes as well. They were made to, to rule 
right? That word is in there. Rule over my creation. And listen to that other episode that I that I put. I think it's called um, What It Means to Reign in Life, okay? And I'll put that link in the show notes. But the point is that God from the very, very beginning is the God who desires to work through his image-bearing human beings. And even though we've, we've marred his image in us, God's call to discipleship, Jesus' call to discipleship, is a way of saying, you are my image bearers. Now come with me and follow me, and I'll show you what that's going to mean in the world. I've got work for you. And we're going to continue sifting through what that means in the weeks ahead. And with that, I, I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll join us again next week. As always, we'd appreciate it if you tell others about the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, blah, blah, blah. You know all the places you go. Visit us on our Facebook page for the Jesus Society podcast. Uh, do check out our website, thejesussociety.com. Um, you can find us on uh, YouTube and Odyssey as well. Um, and if you'd like to support the show and our related ministry, uh, click on the support TJS link in the, on the Jesus Society website. And, and there's links to all that in the show notes. You'll find that out. Thank you for listening. And remember, you are greatly loved. <laughs>